Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Westwood One presents The Polsters. The Polsters. And now, Margie and Kristen. Hi, and welcome to The Polsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls, driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we have really exciting news. The polls, the pollsters nailed another one. And not only did the polls nail another one, which we'll get to in our poll of the week, but we are about to hit a pretty big milestone on this show. Yeah. Almost a thousand reviews on iTunes. Yeah. We are at, I'm looking right now, 980. I think Margie's computer showed 979. So I'm a little slow. Hashtag skewed. I don't, I don't (laughs) quite know. Maybe someone deleted a review. Going in the wrong direction. We're, we're almost at a thousand. So if you have not logged into iTunes given us a little star review, we would deeply appreciate it because we are a show that is averaging uh, – we're looking pretty good right now, guys. I'm feeling good about it. Yeah, and we did not – I mean, Lots I think there's only reviews. a couple of those people – yeah, I think only a handful of people from the very first episode did we say, hey, can you, you know, show some love. Everybody else, you guys did it's it all organic. organic, and we are so appreciative. And some of our most recent – so you can just give us stars. You don't have to, like, type things or think about it too much. But for those who have, we have 143 written reviews, um, which include my favorite as of late is from Lugia222, who writes, they're good, co- they're good podcasters, Brent. 13 out of 10. That's a we rate dogs joke. Ah, I see. <laughs> I love it. I, I was think like, it's great. What, what is that? Okay. Yeah. And I and I like the one that said, I always learn something with every episode. I do too. That's, Thanks. That means we're doing our job. That's right. But we you, learn stuff too. But you know what's not part of our job? Reporting on some of the stories <laughs> that we get pitched on. So I think a fun new segment for us every week would be to discuss the most ridiculous pitches that we get. Uh, so because we do a podcast, we are two ladies. This is not a lady show, but you know. And we know, in fact, most of you guys are dudes, in fact. Yeah, most of our listeners are dudes. Um, But uh, nonetheless, we get pitches a lot for things that I think assume this is a a lady cast. And some of these pitches make me despair for humanity. And so I think it'd be fun each week, Margie, if we talk about the most bizarre, off-the-wall, totally off-topic pitches we get from PR people. Yeah. So my favorite this week— We get more wacky pitches than actual poll pitches, in yes. fact. Yes. Like I think we got like an interesting pitch this week uh, from, was it Edison Research? Yeah. Sent us like really interesting stuff that we'll be talking about in a coming week. Um, but my favorite from this week is Strange Summer Surgery— the ins and outs of belly button makeovers. 
<laughs> you know. Holy Lord. That is a real thing. Well, you know, now that I think about it, Beckett has what's it's called umbilical hernia. So he has like this kind of massive Audi, which some I people do. I had that as a baby. It sometimes goes away. Some people get surgery. Somebody said you can tape a quarter to it. I'm like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. But anyway, maybe <laughs> maybe I should just respond to some spam. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's how I should approach this. My I, favorite. I feel like this is not aimed at Beckett. No. I feel like he is not the target audience of this strange summer surgery pitch. Yeah, he doesn't really care. Or what he he's always ready to take his shirt off. Doesn't really matter if it's summer or not. <laughs> we'll <laughs> take off his shirt for avocados. <laughs> exactly. Delightful. Um, my favorite one was something about Pornhub stats from Coachella, which I thought. I mean, that's data. data. It's data. I don't know if it's quite. <laughs> Is it what our listeners want? Debatable. Maybe. Debatable. Maybe. So we have the perfect song that kind of ties together. Oh yes. Everything this that's going on right week's now. Top lines. I love this song. You be, do you feel like you're being incepted right now? No, I love this song before Inception. And I also saw Piaf, the movie. Excellent there too. But even before that, I like this song. So this is the perfect song for us because it is both a song about regrets. I assume, from my butchered French translation. Yep. Uh, and a song in French. First up, we'll be talking about the French elections as our poll of the week, but then moving into the meat of the episode. No regrets. Voters will talk about whether they'd do anything different with their vote, knowing what they know now. Then, 100 days are up. Who's responsible for what here in Washington? And what has and hasn't gotten done? How are voters feeling about Trump at day 100? Then, who is in touch with the people? Who gets what the people are feeling? The pollsters. The pollsters, because <laughs> that's our job, not the political parties, it seems. We'll talk about who does and does not have the finger on the pulse of the people. Then big government. Do people like it, love it, hate it? We will talk about the latest polling on what people think about the appropriate role of government. And I will be sobbing in the corner if anyone needs me. <laughs> and last but not least, nerd prom is happening. That's right. This weekend. White House Correspondents' Dinner. We have all kinds of updates. So first, our poll of the week. There was a poll of the week, and then there were actually people going to the polls this past week. So there was a French election. Lots of people were really studying it very closely, looking at it as a parallel to our election and to Brexit. Trump seemed like he was putting this uh, his thumb on the scale for Marine Le Pen. I ended up going to the runoff uh, with Emmanuel Macron. Um, but the big news, at least for me, and we were talking about this last week, we were trying to provide some cover for pollsters like, well, the top four are all kind of clustered together. There's not really that much of a difference between, you know, 21 and 19 or 22. I mean, these are all pretty close. Um, but it turns out the polls actually predicted exactly what was going to happen. Good job, pollsters. Way to There was go. not like some secret Le Pen vote out there. Or like, hiding. come on, really one yeah. from, after being a single digit. <laughs> come on, mania. Yeah. <laughs> we did not see come on, mania. Right. Uh, yeah. So Emmanuel Macron, who I... I feel a little bit proud after you were you were like a f- I've been talking, talking about Macron for like months now. When yeah. he was like 
a nothing burger. And I, I had sort of said he was the closest thing to a hashtag selfie vote candidate that there was. Although, if you look at the French exit polls, he actually does terribly with young voters that the populist candidates, the left and right, are the top two candidates with younger voters. Mm. That Macron is in third and then the two major party, quote unquote, candidates come in fourth and fifth with the youngest voters in France. So who, baby? I don't know. And the fact that it's now, it turns out, the story behind his relationship with his I think it's with his wife where they met when he was a student and she was a teacher much older. Oh, but older. that story's been out there for a long time. I thought they like it, it, did it like, like rolled it out as like a new and like an oppo thing or like No, like we're ready to talk about it a little bit more. I don't know. Oh, mate, that's possible. I was going to say I I I remember reading about that at first and being like this must be one of those like uh, fun French factoids. Oh, friends. <laughs> oh, friends, I love you. <laughs> But, so what we now are going to wait and see is what happens next in the runoff. And we hope to talk about this more. I may have a guest to come on and talk about it in uh, weeks ahead. Um, but the polls have been pretty stable. And this was true no matter who the non-Le Pen candidate would be in the runoff. Every poll that showed all the various two ways showed Le Pen not winning, that whoever the other candidate was being having a very solid lead over her. And that doesn't seem to be changing. I don't know if that's going to change now that, you know, the fact that she, is, you know, now that the s- stage is set, does this change in some way? We don't know. Is there some Trump effect? Does the fact that Trump continues to talk about the elections change things? It would have to actually be quite a big shift for this to actually Move. I mean, right now it's like I mean, Macron is basically almost two to one over Le Pen. Yeah, when people say, "Well, is is Le Pen going to get like a surprise win like Trump?" At no point. I don't even think in the worst of the worst moments of Trump's polling was he ever down by twenty twenty five points. No, like it was never margins that were that big. Um. So it again, never say never. But you also had almost all of the other candidates who have lost come out and say that they would be backing Macron in the next round. So it does not seem likely that Le Pen will pull this off. But who knows? But Le Pen has been in the public eye for a very long time. Macron hasn't. Maybe that – I don't know how that affects things. Right. right. Does that mean she's hit her ceiling because people know what she's about? Does not mean that Macron could have some wiggle room since he's newer to the stage? We don't know. Yes. And I, you know, or is because he's such an unknown quantity. I mean, right now you've had his campaign has reported that the Russians are trying to hack into his campaign. And so maybe there will be a Macron WikiLeaks dump between. Don't F it up, Macron. That's all I can say. I know you're not listening to the pollsters, but (laughs) don't F it up. (laughs) So that's the rest. Everyone else is rooting for you. So that's where things stand in the French election. Um, I'm uh, The French elections hold very special place in my heart because they remind me of going on my honeymoon. I went to Nice on my honeymoon five years ago, and it was in between the first and second round. And so, I, you know, I got to see all of the posters up for Sarkozy and Hollande and just simpler time. It was a simpler time. It was a simpler time. Now, neither of those parties have made it to the final round, which like I think is an underrated ginormous story of this. Right. And neither Sarkozy nor Hollande are really, you know, they're not having their best moment right now. No, no. So speaking of not such great moments for leaders, 
the day in Trump, um, the week in Trump. Last week we gave uh, we took our you know did a little bit of a Trump break, not a full Trump break, of course, but a little bit of a break on the polling on Trump. This week, I'm afraid we have to go back full force because well, it is it's hundred days and there's some cool new polls. That yes, come out. NBC, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, ABC. Um, some more stuff from Huffington Post, Pew, Gallup, all the rest. So ABC came out on Sunday, dropped a new poll, um, and Trump has tweeted about these polls, by the way. They're fake I, news polls, except for the numbers in them that he likes. <laughs> uh, and in this poll, um, the uh, ABC folks asked, OK, in the last presidential election, who did you vote for? And of their sample, they find Trump 43, Clinton 46, which if you're national popular vote, Ing, that's not too far off. Right. Um, we don't know if they waited to the vote. We don't know if they waited to the ballot. I might, I would be a little surprised if they did. Given the way they highlighted this. Although it is, you know, we've talked about this on the show before. It is, you know, there is a lot of discussion around that point And many folks like YouGov and others have argued that that's a perfectly legitimate way to do it. But the way they released this, it didn't seem like they had waited. But we don't know. Right. Um, and so then they ask. Um, if you supported Trump, if you voted for Trump at the time, would you say you were enthusiastic about supporting him? And they find that 91 percent say they were enthusiastic, although only 53 percent very enthusiastic, 38 percent somewhat enthusiastic. Like, eh, OK. Uh, and then they said, would you say uh, that you are currently enthusiastic about supporting Trump? And actually more people say they're very enthusiastic about him now than say they were very enthusiastic about him before. And when you say, if who would you vote for if the election was held again today to the full sample? Among people who voted in 2016, Trump hangs on to 43%. Clinton actually loses 6%. Gary Johnson picks up a point. Jill Stein picks up a point. Other, someone else, blah, blah, blah. I mean, so it actually winds up showing Trump winning the popular vote by three points instead of losing the popular vote by three points. So he was understandably pretty excited about that number, which is why – I mean, this is what people have been – I feel like people have been looking at me like I'm a lunatic. Every time I sit in a meeting or on a panel and we talk about Trump and I say he's not losing his supporters. His numbers are flat. They're not budging. Like people are not – there is not this like massive wave of buyer's remorse. It seems like it's happening. There's certainly individual voters who may be like, oh, I wish Trump would stop tweeting. Oh, I wish – I thought that Trump was going to do X and he hasn't. But for the most part, these are not – they're not terrible numbers for Trump. Again – with the understanding that his approval ratings and things look really bad compared to previous presidents. But I am of the mind that no matter who won the election, they were going to have pretty mediocre numbers no matter what. So uh, so I have a few reactions to all of this. So first, I mean, the reason his numbers overall look terrible in terms of his approval and so on, and Huffington Post is a good breakdown of this, but there's lots of places you can find this kind of analysis, is that his lack of crossover appeal. Yeah. That, you know, he's got just terrible, terrible numbers with Democrats, pretty bad with independents, worse than any other president with their opposite party at this point in their presidency, period. That's a fact. That's not – it just really isn't in dispute um, unless you just, you know – don't believe any polls, which, you know, I guess if you're president, you can do that. But I don't think you're listening to the show. I mean, you'd be, you'd be hate listening if you didn't like any polls. That you were Find listening some to us, ghosts. But. If you hate listening to the show, just turn it off and go outside and like have a know, Cadbury cream egg. Exactly, walk it off. Exactly. Like, you know, go just, eat some jelly beans. Exactly. Exactly. Um, find something else to do. Um, but anyway. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is this notion of regret and like movement um 
uh, you know, feeling remorse. And we asked some of, you know, we had a lot of these same questions are in this Washington Post ABC. We did in our poll, which you've heard me talk about, uh, the PSB poll that we've done over a couple months, where we asked about enthusiasm and we looked at people who've moved in terms of enthusiasm. We didn't ask specifically about regret. We did use regret in kind of the hook because lots of people are looking at this issue of regret. There was another poll that looked at regret. I think there were some focus groups that GQR did that were in the post where they looked at Trump voters and they said, look, these people are not regretting. They didn't, it wasn't quantitative, it was qualitative, but it was a similar finding. I, I feel like we've seen this now in a couple places. And I, we didn't use the word regret in our last release because, you know, it, it just doesn't seem like there's more people moving. And it was it's confusing to kind of try to focus on regret as a label, I think, because there isn't a lot of regret out there, and it is a construction for folks who are looking at this chaos in the White House and say, well, surely somebody must regret, you know, whose fault is this? Somebody surely feels badly about how this is all happening. Maybe it's the voters. And it, it's a high bar to ask voters who support him say, well, don't you regret this? Because you have to admit you were wrong. You have to admit you were wrong. And Trump is responsible for things that Trump is doing wrong. I, I, it's, I, I don't like – you know, and again, acknowledging that that I've I've looked at this language because there's so many questions about it. That asking, forcing voters, or asking voters, or put, trying to measure this regret, I think, is putting the blame for our political dialogue on voters when we really should be, you know, looking at folks here in Washington and to try and figure out who's culpable, as opposed to blaming the voters. And so, of course, voters don't respond well to that. It's just, I think, kind of widens this divide between the people who cover and talk about politics and, you know, the voters themselves. Yeah. And when you take a look at uh, the ABC polls, you know, later on in the poll, they ask some questions about Trump's characteristics. Do you think he has the type of judgment to serve effectively as president, et cetera, et cetera? Um, Trump still does really well on all of these metrics among his own voters. And frankly, if if you recall in the exit polls, there were an awful lot of people who voted for Trump who did say he did not have the temperament to be president. He did not have the judgment to be president, but they voted for him anyways. Now you see only single digits of Trump voters saying, yeah, I voted for him, but he doesn't have good judgment. Like they have sort of rallied to him. Um, now, other non-voter voters who who were sort of up for grabs or didn't participate in 2016, they tend to take a pretty negative view of Trump on all but one characteristic, and that's is he a strong leader there? The non-voters and other voters are kind of split. So to your point, he doesn't have a lot of crossover appeal, but it seems as though he's almost galvanized. Like if you like Trump at all, it's like you're down in the bunker with him now. You are you are locked in. Yeah, yeah. And I – yeah, absolutely, right? On the other hand, there is still some evidence in the Washington Post ABC poll and the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, which is consistent with what we found last week, which was consistent with Gallup and Pew. I believe before that, for sure, Gallup, um, that Trump is weak on some traits, that there are some traits where he's losing ground, that maybe there isn't this groundswell of regret um, per se, but he's losing ground. For example, the uh, NBC Wall Street Journal poll shows that he has weaker ratings on being firm and decisive. He's weaker ratings on changing business as usual. Um uh, weaker ratings in some of these traits than maybe just even a few months ago, being knowledgeable and experienced. Now, does that mean they didn't break it out by party? So we don't know if that's just with Republicans or Democrats or independents. Um, but 
it, it does show that beneath the surface there is more nuance there, even if there is not a massive change in sort of the overall number. Because we've talked about on the show week after week that his overall approval ratings move some, but not, you know, they're not volatile. But some of these numbers beneath the surface, though, seem to be b- moving in a downward trend for sure. It just isn't affecting the broader numbers. Yeah. In that in that ABC poll, they asked, would you say Trump is doing a better job as president than you expected? 35% say better, 35% say worse. Right. Which is consistent with some of the stuff that we found, Isn't right? this the Natalie Jackson rule? <laughs> right. Right. Is this a Natalie Jackson rule question? It's yeah. split right down the middle? Yeah. The one thing in this ABC poll that they find even Clinton voters like Trump doing, uh, do you approve or disapprove of Trump pressuring companies to keep jobs in the U.S.? 52% of Clinton voters approve of that, that thing. Was, that was my thing. That was my Margie O'Mara advice to just talk, meet with CEOs. Yep. Talk about infrastructure. Throw your phone away. <laughs> Those are my. That's my three-point plan. There you go. If you ever get invited to go do a briefing at the White House. It's probably not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to give them good advice. Understandably. Yes, understandably. I'll, be, I'll be like, do things crazy. <laughs> and resign. You should always have your phone. Always have your phone. No. Um, this, which, what's fascinating to me about this uh, question of do you approve or disapprove of Trump pressuring companies to keep jobs in the U.S. is like, think about who doesn't like that he does that. I mean, in setting aside that there seem to be 41 percent of Clinton voters that like, again, no matter what Trump does, they're going to hate it, is within Republican circles. You know, in this poll, there's like no Republicans or Trump voters that don't like this. But there are, and I kind of count myself in this bucket a little personally, just putting my cards on the table, like uncomfortable with government pressuring businesses into doing things. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is the setup for our later segment on how people don't actually care about limiting the size or influence of government at all. Mm-mm. Again, by the end of this show, I will be in the corner sobbing in the fetal position. <laughs> but this is uh, just just uh, linking this segment to what we'll be talking just about go later. Back to like, je ne even, regret je, I don't regret. Yes. Um, even Trump voters, like n- none of them seem to be like, hmm, is it appropriate for presidents to be tweeting to pressure companies to do things like, no, nope, that's just a concern that like me and my five squishy rhino establishment friends have. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's just, you know, that's some policy detail stuff. Now, this question of and we've talked about this before, and it's one of those things that and and, and I think when you look at the regret piece, it's it's also people are trying to scratch the same itch, which is what would and we've talked joked about this in the show, all these questions from the media. Well, is this going to be what makes his voters move? Well, what about now? What about this? What about that? And so Huffington Post and YouGov had a different way of approaching this question of what is there something that would make people move away from Trump? So they asked um, of people who they asked, you know, approve or disapprove uh, first. And then of people who approve, they asked, could President Trump do something to uh, to help you to lose your approval? Or is there almost nothing Trump could do to lose your approval? Or aren't you sure? And so 50 percent of people who approve of the president say, yes, he could do something to lose my approval. The other half are divided evenly between, no, there's almost nothing, and I don't know if there's something. So this is quantifying the could he stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone like – it's quantifying exactly what percentage of America really falls into that bucket. Right. Uh, But what you don't know is you don't know what it is they're imagining. When you say there's almost nothing. So in that almost nothing is that like – 
are people thinking like, okay, well, if he stabs my dog in, in the face, like that, would, oh I would not God. be, I would not approve of that, right? I would no longer approve of well, him. This got dark. <laughs> or is he? Or is that just like, oh, if you know, if he nominated this person who I disagree with something they said on a panel ten years ago? You know, I don't. We don't know like what it is that we're, people are thinking about. You know, but that's. Is that the you know is that the hedge of well there's almost nothing well surely he could do physically do something but short of that no and they've they've also quantified the even if Donald Trump brought you a puppy and a <laughs> check for a million dollars and a hug <laughs> they'd be like nope I don't want your hug get off my front porch that's right uh, they have quantified those people as well so among those who disapprove of the way donald trump is handling his job as president 63 percent of those folks say there's almost nothing president trump could do to win my approval and 64 percent of those say he has not done anything that i approve of only 24 percent of his disapprovers say well he's done at least one thing that i like i disapprove of him overall but at least he's done something i like right nope so, in Not fact, the, the opposition to Trump is more steadfast in saying there's, you know, I'm not going anywhere than the support. Yep. So that's an interesting finding. It depressed the Fempire at Huffington Post, I think, um, because it seemed like there were just so many people who said who volunteered, like, I am not going anywhere. Like, I'm not moving. Um but it's interesting, I think, because there's so much talk of folks on the right. His Trump, his base, his base isn't going anywhere. What could he do to win and lose his base? You know, maybe nothing, maybe something. But in fact, there's not as much talk about what could move his opponents toward him. And there's probably a lot less that could be done to move his opponents. But you know what? I almost feel like that's a bad place for Democrats to be, even though it sounds like, oh, that should be good, right? That his opposition is dug in and his supporters could be lost is – if he thinks there's a chance he could do a deal with Democrats or whatever, like isn't there – if if he felt like there was a way to win folks from the left, would he be more inclined to like try to cut a deal with them and do things that are more moderate? Whereas if he thinks like there is literally nothing I can do to ever win these people, then does he feel more like, eh, I got to figure out how to make it work with these Freedom Caucus guys? Like does this dynamic actually make it – less likely that Trump will ever try to pursue compromise policies with Democrats. Because if he can't ever win over any Democratic voters, eh, why bother? Yeah. I don't know. I it's, know. It's, it's a double-edged sword. I know. It's I know. It's tricky, right? And if he loses popularity with his base, is he going to just feel compelled to try and reach out to Democrats? You know, who knows, right? So it, there's the legislative strategy and then there's the voter strategy. And you have a lot of Democratic electeds who are like, there's no way I can be, you know, working with Trump for folks who are in even slightly blue areas, um, given some of these numbers. Mm -hmm. So anyway, lots of challenges <laughs> on yep. both sides. Um, well, one big group that is a part of the kind of Trump resistance is young voters, yep. as we've talked about for a while. And the Harvard Institute of Politics has released the 33rd installment of my beloved Harvard Institute of Politics. John Della Volpe. poll. John Della Volpe, friend of the show, has been out there um, – Telling the world about the results of their new spring 2017 poll. So the Harvard Institute of Politics does their poll at least twice a year. In the fall, they usually focus on sort of partisan political dynamics, elections, all of that stuff. And in the spring, their questions are more about institutions and civic engagement and that sort of thing. Um, and their findings are that young voters are 
very concerned about division in America. But really, one of the only questions that there isn't big partisan division on is the question of, I would like to unite America. On almost everything else, actually, he says there are huge statistically significant differences between where young Republicans and young Democrats stand. We are united only on the fact that we're divided. Only on the fact that we are divided and want to be united. Um, But younger voters, despite being more... Um, activated and more being more likely now to believe that politics is relevant to their life are also less likely to say that the idea of working in some form of public service is appealing to them. So in one sense for younger voters, this election has been a like a, a freak out moment, um, but it has not made them say like, gosh, I should get involved in traditional politics because look, the levers of power have been taken over by this guy that I disapprove of. Instead, it's like, that's gross. I want nothing to do with it. Which I think is a ch- a challenge mm-hmm. um, if you are part of the resistance or what have you. Republicans, on the other hand, have a big challenge on a number of policy issues. So I – I mean part of my whole big drumbeat about the selfie vote and Republicans need to fix what they're doing with young voters uh, goes back to data from this poll from you know five, six, seven years ago where they were finding things like younger voters leaning towards more progressive views on things and, hey, Republicans would need to make the case uh, of their position. Now, comparing 2012 to 2017, young voters have gotten even more progressive on a host of issues. Um, So, for example, on the question of the government should do more to curb climate change, even at the expense of economic growth. Now you have young voters by an 18-point margin saying, yes, we should do something about climate change even if it curbs economic growth. Which folks on the left would say that's a false choice. Would say that's a false choice. Um, But back in 2012 when this question was asked, it was evenly divided. So even acknowledging, oh, there would be economic costs, you still have favorability toward that action. On the question of the government should spend more to reduce poverty, four years ago, um, agree was up 12 points over disagree. Now it's up 29, 46 percent to 17. So big shifts in young voters becoming more progressive on certain things. Now, if you dig into the poll further, you see that this is not like um, young voter views are not all in the progressive basket. You find young voters in this poll very favorable towards school choice. You actually find more agreeing with like a supply sidery kind of message about tax cuts, which is odd and like rejecting a kind of Keynesian, the government should spend more and it would create economic growth. So like there are some weird nuggets in this poll that like if you're a Republican looking for hope, you can grab onto. But there's a ton in here that is really bad news. And if you're the Trump administration, there's only one issue where young voters seem to really agree with you, and that's trade. Right. Young voters, 60 percent say they agree with cracking down on countries that engage in illegal or unfair trade practices, but on repeal and replace for the ACA, on the Middle East travel ban, on building the wall, young voters, not fans of any of those things. So that may be one of those rare areas where some of the younger Bernie Sanders supporters may meet up with the younger Trump supporters. Sure. And, and folks who listen to the show know that I'm very loath to find things in comparison between Sanders folks and Trump folks, that that's like an overblown parallel that people like to make. But trade and young people may be one of those areas and where then the other, you can't make it. The other issue, I mean, if you think of the two things where Donald Trump's rhetoric and Bernie Sanders' rhetoric have at times overlapped, one is on trade and the other is Donald Trump's occasional rhetoric about things like the Iraq war. Now, granted, he has, we're going to bomb the S out of ISIS. and So like Trump's 
rhetoric on military engagement is a little all over the place. Yeah. Uh, for sure. But he was the one Republican candidate standing up in the primary and saying, like, the war in Iraq was dumb and we need to stop doing these foreign interventions and this is all stupid. And um, and that is one thing that in this poll, the Harvard IOP has consistently found young voters in recent years saying we should not be as engaged in foreign conflict. So right. – I, I can't say that that is like a thing young voters agree with Trump on because it's unclear where Trump even really lands. But um, yeah, so if you are a free trading, American military, robust leadership kind of Republican, like this poll is almost 100 percent bad news for you. <laughs> Again, uh, I'll be in the corner <laughs> sobbing my eyes out. Um, now, and d- don't the students at Harvard help write the questions for this? They do. It's a, it's really neat. This has consistently been a student-led project. Which is um, why some of the questions are so interesting and policy detailed and not like – like obvious news hooks or that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, and a lot of these policy questions, they have been good about keeping the language as consistent as possible mm-hmm. um, over time so that you can have these comparisons. So I was I was actually trying to pay attention to places where I noticed there had been wording changes because I'm assuming – so, OK, let's take, for example, and I think it was the 2010 poll they did. They asked a question about do you believe – that homosexual relationships are morally right or wrong. And when they re-asked the question in later years, they changed it to same-sex relationships. Mm -hmm. So you can tell that, you know, at some point students sitting around the table said it is worth it to change the language because we don't think it's right to be using this old language we were using in this poll question. But there was research comparing – views toward homosexual and same-sex marriage that showed a real difference right. actually in that that very specific bit. I'm sure it was a reaction to that that they changed the numbers. Yeah. And so, so, you know, taking the decision to take a question you've been asking over time and tweak the wording, you don't take lightly because you're kind of throwing off your ability yep. to have a trend line. But so it's really cool that students get to have these discussions and talk about these trade-offs, these things that we in the polling world do and I have seen so many students who have gone on from running the IOP poll who have gone on to do fabulous things. My former uh, intern Eva, who's now like just killing it uh, in the the political tech world, she's doing great. This company called Quorum Analytics that's like a big deal here in DC mm-hmm. that um, helps feed government affairs firms with data about Congress is led by I don't want to say a kid because now he's you know. A full-fledged adult here. He's very (laughs) young, very young, um, but super bright kid who ran the Harvard IOP poll. So they have a very storied – or they have a very prestigious group of kids who always run this program and leave and go do wonderful things. Yeah, and shout-outs to all the folks who have come up to us or have gone to our events or who came up to me when I was last at that Harvard political – analytics conference and several listeners came up to me and one person said that they are like – he's like, I'm doing polling at my – school newspaper because I've listened to your show. So anyway. Very cool. That's how we tie it all together. Meanwhile, let's talk about big government. Big government. So while young people are open to some government spending domestically, that's very consistent with what some of these other national polls have shown overall, not just with young people, um, a very similar pattern. And what was interesting is you had a couple different polls show this right at the same time. The Washington Post, I mean, sorry, the NBC, Wall Street Journal poll and Pew both found um, an increase in the number of people who said they want to see 
more government involvement, a larger role for government. They ask the question differently. NBC Wall Street Journal asks it, um, do you think that the um, that government should do more to solve people's problems or should it get out of the way? I think this is their language. And Pew asked, would you rather have smaller government with fewer services or bigger government with more services? And uh, both polls showed an increase in support for a larger government. Smaller government in this Pew question has pretty much been leading the pack going back to the the Gingrich revolution in 94. Um, big government, more services, I think has n- almost never been in the lead in this poll. So this being the first time, 48% preferring bigger government, more services, while 45% prefer smaller government, fewer services, is a, a notable shift. Yeah. And I wonder how much part of this is that you've got a sort of the ideological left who has always kind of said, look, bigger government's not a problem, more services, government can do good. Plus the non-ideological Trump folks who are like, well, if Trump's running the government, then I want to I, do more. I want more Trump services. So sure. So I wonder how much of this is about who is running the government now and how much of it is an actual shift in belief about the role of government in the abstract. Yeah. So this that was very much like a tweet we got from Amy Walter when we pushed this out. She's like, well, isn't it because Republicans are in charge? And so in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, they released the party breakout over time. They didn't go all the way back as far back as their <clears throat> their poll goes, but it shows D's, R's and I's all slowly moving up. Yes, there's been more of an uptick among Republicans and that is probably part of what's going on, but that's not solely what's going on. You do, you see other parties drifting up too. Maybe yeah, independence, because, big time. Because maybe Democrats feel that there's a threat and they want to make sure they you know put their marker down. Uh, who knows? But uh, it's not clear from just looking at the trend line. But it is not just about a spike in Republicans because there's a Republican in charge. That's not really the only. Doesn't seem like that's the only thing going on. Um, And if you take a look at Pew's information, so they break their results out by a whole variety of uh, crosstabs. And uh, they show um, if you take a look at the age breakdown, for instance, uh, young people, 57 percent preferring bigger government, more services, only 39 percent preferring smaller government, fewer services. But as I have long said, as millennials are getting older, they are not becoming more conservative. The 30 to 49 age group is almost no different. That actually the big divide there is people over 50 versus people under 50. But people under 50, whether you're 18 or 49, like those crosstabs all look kind of the same, that they prefer bigger government. This is not just about the kids, guys. This is not just, oh, they're all going to suddenly decide they love limited government when they turn 50. Right. They're going to still want I can't even role. keep making this. I'm like, <laughs> I've made this argument so many times. Well, I the, can't do it anymore. Well, Margie. the data and the data is consistent. So I guess, Yay. well, just like every good message, you need to just keep repeating it until you know, somebody remembers it, I guess. But um, <laughs> uh, but we believe you here at the pollsters. We hear it. Uh, we hear you loud <laughs> and clear. Um, so the Pew poll also, they have a really full report online, which folks should go check out because it's not just sort of the abstract of big versus small. They also ask about increasing spending versus decreasing spending on a whole host of issues, veterans, education, infrastructure, Medicare, State Department and embassies even, I mean, a whole really long list, assistance to the needy around the world, et cetera. And for most of these things, 
um, more people want to increase spending than decrease spending in the overall. They also look at the change over 2013, which was the last time they asked, I guess, this long list. And and across the board, there's uh, interest in spending more on every single one of these uh, different items, you know, maybe a margin of error on a couple of them, but there's been an increase across the board. They also look at party breakouts and, uh, you know, they're what you expect, of course, in terms of party differences on, uh, spending priorities, but they also look at spending. Uh, interest in spending by party over time, which I think is particularly interesting. You see a real increase among Republicans in, who want to support increased spending on anti-terrorism and military. That's to be expected. Um, but that's not the only thing going on with these numbers. But And that's not where Republicans were. There was almost no party difference on should we increase or decrease spending on anti-terrorism and military issues back around 2012, right? That that was very aligned. And again, to Amy Walter's point, Trump is now in charge. So now they're like, let's make the military great again. Right. Let's give them a bunch of money. Right. Now, the one issue where there is hardly any uh, difference between D's and R's, rebuilding highways, bridges, that's part. That's everybody loves. That's point two in my three point presentation. <laughs> Trump administration beat up on companies, build bridges. <laughs> no, not beat up on companies. Just meet with CEOs. Meet you, with CEOs. You don't even, with it doesn't CEOs. even matter what you talk. Just like a picture of you meeting with CEOs. One, two, roads and bridges. Three, throw your phone away. That's it. So anyway, roads and bridges. Hardly any difference between the parties. It is not the top in terms of percent who want to say they would increase federal spending on it, but it has got the smallest party divide, which I think is consistent with what others have shown on that particular point. But much larger differences on health care and assistance to the needy and defense, you know, the usual suspects in terms of where you see differences here. Uh, so uh, we, we've been talking about big versus little government and government spending. We, As we approach uh, this 100-day mark, we have also been approaching – the potential of a government shutdown. Yippee! Even though the president and Congress all are all run by the same party. Right. Yay! So <laughs> It seems as though, by the way, that the shutdown is likely to be averted. At least one of the issues that was potentially going to cause a shutdown has been taken off the table. Um, OMB Director Mick Mulvaney has said that the president would be willing to sign a bill that does not have funding for the wall, which was one of the potential triggers of a shutdown was if Congress puts wall funding in the bill and Democrats filibuster it, then what happens? Trump has said he will sign a bill that does not have funding for the wall. But there are all sorts of other things that are going to be in this bill that Democrats don't love. And are they enough to trigger a shutdown? And right. So, Forget about big or small. We just want a does it people open just want or a closed. government. Yes. Versus and so no. Morning Consult asks a whole variety of questions about is are any of the following things important enough to prompt a shutdown? Now, one of the uh, things that I think is challenging about this is when you're framing these questions, are you framing it as the thing? I was a little confused on this. Maybe I, I need to ask my, my dear friend Tyler, who is a question writing guru over at Morning Consult. But um, here people are presented with a variety of things, whether or not the government should for instance, increase funding for defense and homeland security, decrease funding for domestic programs. So this is like it's their directional, right? Okay. So you shut down the government over decreasing funding for domestic programs. But it's unclear. Shut it down because you 
want them to do that and they're not doing it or shut it down because you want them to not do it and they are doing it. I think if you are somebody taking the poll, I'm kind of curious, like, for instance, on this question of should you shut down the federal government over funding Planned Parenthood? Um, I mean, the other thing, too, about this question, for each of the following, indicate if you believe the issue is important enough to prompt a government shutdown. I mean – Not do you think it should. Right. It's not a normative right, question. Right. Like I think it might be important enough to prompt a – it's not important enough to me. It's important enough to somebody else. Yeah. Um, in this case, you find that the issues people think are most likely to prompt a – are most – well, again, depending on how we interpret it – important enough to prompt a shutdown – uh, the top one is defense and homeland security funding. Forty seven percent think that is important enough to prompt a shutdown. Forty two percent think uh, continuing to make cost sharing payments to health insurance companies as part of the ACA is important enough. Uh, behind that, you then get to funding the deportation task force. Uh, you get to decreasing funding for domestic programs, which is pretty broad. Uh, Planned Parenthood and then funding sanctuary cities are among the things that are tested. Um, providing benefits to retired coal miners comes in at 35 percent, thinking it's important enough to sh- cause a shutdown. Um, and then they say, who would you blame the most if they could not keep the government going? Democrats get 31 percent of the blame. Republicans get 28 percent of the blame. Trump gets 23 percent of the blame. 18 percent say they don't know. So if you add together Republicans and Trump, those numbers are not great for the GOP. No, they're not. But Democrats, a plurality pick Democrats. And by the way, I don't think we spoke about this, but in one of the – it was the Washington Post ABC poll that showed Democrats were doing not as well as Republicans in terms of who's in touch with Americans. So the fact that a plurality are picking Democrats is not great news, even though part of it is because you have you know people split between Trump and Republicans in Congress. Um, still – Nonetheless, something to keep in mind. I think what's interesting about this is that if you look at uh, one of the top most important things to prompt a shutdown, it's increasing funding for defense and homeland security because a lot of Republicans believe two thirds, roughly, of Republicans say that's important enough to prompt a shutdown. You know, these shutdowns have been about cutting funding. Um, but where Republicans are most interested in prompting a shutdown is on something where it's increasing funding. I know it's for military, but still is interesting uh, context. And the level set of this whole section for the morning consult poll is just a broader question of, you know, should uh, members of Congress should allow a temporary government shutdown if it helps them achieve their goals, or they should take all necessary steps to avoid a shutdown and achieve their goals some other way. And on that question, there's hardly any difference across party lines. About two thirds, whether or to three fourths, not that big of a difference. D's, I's, R's say Congress should take all steps to avoid a shutdown. So for these other issues, it's not like people really want to see a shutdown for any of these issues. Ultimately, they don't really want to see a shutdown. Well, we will see if we get there <laughs> Friday afternoon. <laughs> Here's to hoping. Yeah. Don't. No, I, I don't. I, I We were joking when we said, yippee, we do not want to see. I don't want to see a shutdown, I don't think. Even if it causes a lot of political turmoil and chaos for Republicans, I think it's just going to be bad news for all of us. Um, hurts everybody. I think it hurts everybody when when the government stops working. Okay. So speaking of work, Dan Casino, who always has interesting polls uh, at Fairleigh Dickinson, he his 
gang did a poll during the election that showed when you ask a question about gender, changing gender roles before the vote, it among men, it actually helped Trump being primed on the thought of changing gender roles made men more supportive of Trump because they split the sample and they asked him to, you know, half got that question before the vote, half got that question about gender roles after the vote. It was quite interesting. It was just in New Jersey. It was early on in the election, um, but it did, it was something that was pretty noticeable in terms of a, an experiment. Now they have a new study where they looked at historical data uh, about um, – the household income break between husbands and wives and how that affected over time men's political ideology. And they found that it, as men became – as they receded in their role as the family breadwinner, they became more – ideological, either D or R. Yeah, that this this is really interesting. So it's not just that as men in their households are sort of earning less compared to women that they become more conservative. They find that instead it sort of pushes you to the edge. This is sort of quoting um, men who have a more generally liberal worldview react to threats to traditional masculine identity by further rejecting traditional masculinity, while conservative men react by becoming um, embracing of it more. So it, it if you if you are if your household income looks less like the traditional the man is the breadwinner, it you like react either by saying like, yeah, but that's all garbage anyways and like right. moving further or, to the left. Well, or I don't, you know, or I'm like doubling down. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. So that's, I mean, again, this is not by asking people directly like, hey, so now that you're not the breadwinner, how do you feel about abortion? It's not like that. They're, they are looking at the change over time in men's uh, political views and looking at the, you know, at uh, data from the same time about household uh, income composition. So you're not asking people to self-report this stuff, um, which is super, super interesting. So thanks for flagging that for us. Um but now let's talk about the nerd prom. Margie, are you going to nerd prom? So my husband is going to nerd prom. So normally I'm kind of a nerd prom fan. So back – I'm old enough to remember when I was younger and I had a friend who was a reporter who like actually got to sit at a table in the dinner, which not everybody gets to do. Um, I would watch it. and So I went to the – like pre-party with her, dressed up as if I was sitting, then went home, watched it on TV, and then walked back because I lived close by, and then walked back in my outfit at the nice. end. Like, oh, yeah, that was great. That was a great dinner, right? So, that, <laughs> Which is totally fine to do when you're 24. It's not really fine to do at this age. But anyway, um, so th- so I, ever since then, I've kind of, you know, it's part of the fabric of Washington. But my husband is going. I am not going, but my husband is going. Folks who are going, insiders, we know you're out there. He will be at the CBS table with Alan Ruck, who you may know as Cameron Fry from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He's going to be in a new uh, movie that's coming out in a few weeks with Brad Pitt called War Machine. And so my, so he will be there. He will also be at uh, one of the brunches on Saturday. And if you see Alan Ruck, 
Okay. You should go up to him and my husband and say, I'm a listener of the pollsters. Then you're on your own. Then you got to figure out what to say. But it won't be weird. It's definitely not going to be the weirdest like person going up to somebody they don't know that's going to happen that weekend. Okay. Yes. I guarantee that because that's just, you know, that is basically what everybody does all weekend. So if you see them, you should go up and say, hello, your wife. <laughs> I listen to the pollsters and I'm coming up to say hello and they will be totally fine with it. It's very intimidating to be in that whole environment and to be one of the like Washington is Hollywood for ugly people, like to yeah. have that mentality in your head and then to be like, oh, there's Emma Watson like 10 feet from me and she is a stunning vision and a goddess. And I am like, you know, you just want things not, that match like, and not have a run. Yeah. Those. Like, yeah. um, shoot, I didn't have time to get a pedicure before I came here. Right. No. And like, but she's Emma Watson. She's a goddess. Um, so I had never been to the correspondence dinner. And last year I finally got to go and I sat at the ABC table and was next to the bad guy from Scandal. But I don't watch Scandal. So this was not jarring to me. But my friends who nice do watch guy Scandal in real life, were bad like, guy oh, Scandal. my gosh, you're sitting next to him. He's like a murderer. He's so <laughs> horrible. I'm like, no, he's a very lovely man. Uh, I don't. But um, the one celebrity that I saw that I could, even though I looked a mess, like my contact had like scratched my eyes. So I was wearing my glasses. My eyes were all red and horrible and I didn't have makeup on and I hadn't had a chance to shower because I had flown in from Denver and landed at Dulles like five minutes before the dinner. I mean, it was a hot mess disaster. Tom Hiddleston was two tables away. He uh, is fabulous. He's like one of my favorite actors. He's gorgeous. He's wonderful. He's everything. I had to go say hi. And so I, like a creepster, kind of turn around and like, I'm going to take like a selfie and like Tom Hiddleston will just be hovering in the background. Like I am making him inadvertently photobomb my selfie. Yeah. And Elsie Granderson, who is in ESPN ABC land and was at my table, was like, Kristen, you are being such a weird freak right now. Please just come with me. And just grabs me and like we walk right up to Tom Hiddleston and he's like, hi, Tom. LZ, this is Kristen. We're big fans of you. Can we get a picture with you? And he was he was like, sure, sure. Yes. And I was like, oh, this is what normal social interaction is like yes. <laughs> instead of me being a total freak. And so we got this picture with Tom Hiddleston. And yeah. And we walked away and I was like, well, this was a few months before he began dating Taylor Swift, by the way. Oh, OK. All right. That guy. <laughs> now, I was just like playing along. I'm like, this is a really – I'm like, this is a great story. Maybe it will be revealed to me no, who this guy is. Um, <laughs> did you watch The Night Manager? Uh, did you watch the new King Kong movie? No. Did you watch The Avengers? No. OK. Let, let's not do this. Three this strikes. Get depressing. Three strikes. I'm out. We're done. Okay. Um, but no, I am not like – you know, it, I'm a little bit older, so I'm not like a, like a selfie like now, as you know, since you wrote the literally wrote the book on the selfie vote, right? So, you know, pe- this is part how it is to be it's totally normal. It's totally normal. normalized. People just barge up to you and just want <laughs> selfies constantly. Um, and I, so I don't normally do that, but I did do it when I went to one of the brunches for a couple of years. You just like, there's a kid from Glee. There's a kid from, you know, there's somebody from Veep. Like, and you just barge up to him and you're like, Yo, and you know, let's have a little bit of an interaction, and then I'm going to leave, and you know, and that's it. And they, that's they know that that's how it's going to go. But so. I wonder how many celebrities will actually be here this year because Trump, being Trump, and Trump not even coming to the dinner, and it's this there are whole, fewer like, parties, some parties, thing. And so I, 
I inadvertently but cleverly got married on Correspondence Day weekend five years ago, which now means every Correspondence Day weekend, I have an excuse to just get out of town and be like, sorry, not here, Uh, which I'm taking advantage of that this time around, going to Canada. Yeah. Super excited to visit Montreal for the first time. Well, now you can all sing Je ne regret rien, even though that's French, not Canadian, but, you know, might as well. So there are – Lo and behold, it's probably not a surprise. The polling is divided on the White House Correspondents' Dinner. We're getting to the data. We weren't just talking about celebrities. We were actually getting to a point on data. Washington Times shows 795% (laughs) (laughs) thought it was a good idea for Trump to – think it's a good idea for Trump to boycott the dinner. Um, This isn't even a decimal point error. I don't really know exactly what happened. It is just some long, crazy bar. It says 795%. And then Salon says, yes, reporters should boycott Trump's White House Correspondents' Dinner. You aren't boycotting the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I'm boycotting the White House Correspondents' (laughs) Dinner. Exactly. You can't dump me. I'm dumping you. That's right. You can't fire me. I quit. That's right. uh, I'm boycotting the Correspondents' Dinner so I can go to three kids' birthday parties. So so take that. (laughs) Take that really good time. Um, So anyway, even – the nerd prom polling is divided, I'm sad to say. So our key findings, pollsters, two for two in April. Who says you can't trust the polls? You can, for sure. Uh, people want the government to do more. Good thing we have an administration that's – sorry. Okay, never mind. And guys, if you can afford – can't afford flashy cars and clothes, maybe try a more extreme political position on for size. And happy Nerd Prom Weekend, but every day is Nerd Day here at The Pollsters. You can find us on Twitter at at The Pollsters or individually at at Margie O'Meara and at K. Soltis Anderson. We're at www.thepollsters.com where you can find our links to polling resources that we think are awesome. You can also find us on Facebook where throughout the week we'll post links to the stories we might be talking about in coming episodes. Make sure that you send us a review, um, tweet at us, let us know what you think. We love you guys, and we can't wait for the show next week. Thanks. Bye. A Westwood One podcast production. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.